Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction Podcast number 31. The award-winning short stories, The Wreck of Amtrak's Silver Service, and Gatemouth Willie Brown on Guitar, read by the author. A surgeon in a small town lives with his garrulous, socially adept, but childless wife. He blames her for his failed career, and anger mounts to where he plots to be rid of her, seeking help to remove her from his life. But his plans go horribly awry. I'm Bill Coles, your host. So let's get started with the wreck of Amtrak's Silver Service. Heinrich Cleaver, M.D., F.A.C.S., asked his wife Agnes to have a special anniversary dinner. Thirty-two years. They never ate together anymore. They really rarely talked after his affair with Nurse Penny Pram, even though Agnes fully understood and forgave him years ago. Agnes still loved life, God, her dog, and her bridge parties. Her ecstasy seemed limitless. She was always too much about everything. He hated her unwavering joy that kept her brain from generating even the slightest blip on the EEG of life's battery of significant ideas. She had been the sea fog around his ship of opportunity, happily obscuring his chances of advancement, cheerfully diverting any choices that could have made him great. She had, insidiously, buried him in this godforsaken town with her mundane acceptance of everything with excessive good humor. He could have been a parchlek scholar or a C.J. Betty in-house surgeon, for Christ's sake. He was that good. At dinner, in the silences between them, he revisited the weekly cycle of her habits. Church on Sundays, grocery shop on Mondays, gardening on Tuesdays and often Fridays. She volunteered at Goodwill on Thursdays. Saturday, without fail, she walked the country roads with one or two of her good friends. Wednesday evenings were always for a bridge club. He was tired of thinking about her routines, as regular and irritating as a loose bowel movement. It was the moment he began to plan, slowly and meticulously, generating a delay in his decision to act alone that proved prudent, and the stratagem delivered to him the perfect solution for Agnes. Heinrich had an emergency call to the hospital and for weeks he tented Billy Bob, who was charred and half-crazed after he almost burned to death in a car wreck following an alleged but never proven bank robbery. Under Heinrich's care, Billy Bob improved, although his thinking zigzagged at times. Heinrich became obsessed with Billy Bob's past and how it might fit into his future. In one of Billy Bob's lucid moments, the doc pulled down the hospital gown to where some good skin had survived and exposed a tattoo just below Billy Bob's left clavicle. A clock the size of a half dollar. The hands frozen at 12 o'clock position, but no number 12. And only the numbers for hours 1 through 7 along the dial edge, some light, others dark, as if they'd been done at different times. The doctor questioned with a frown. When Billy Bob didn't respond, he asked, What's that? It's a clock, Billy Bob said. I don't get it, Heinrich said. Billy Bob cackled. Uh, you don't really want to know. I do. Uh, did you commit? Stop. Why? Don't say that word, Doc. Never say that word. Accidental, wasn't it? Heinrich smiled knowingly and noted that Billy Bob didn't see the humor in the antonym. That frightened the Doc a little. 
You'd never do that on purpose, Heinrich said to ease the tension. Don't know what you're talking about, Billy Bob said. You do. It's important to me. Billy Bob kept quiet, but the doc studied his face. I can read you like a book, Heinrich said. It's a living, doc. I never done nothing I didn't think was deserved. Heinrich was slightly ashamed of the thrill that surged through him when he knew for certain Billy Bob was the man he needed. And Billy Bob owed Heinrich for healing him, too. So, day by day, Heinrich slowly presented a plan in oblique, vague installments. It took a long time for Billy Bob to be convinced of Heinrich's misery and to get the plan right and agree. And then they finally agreed on a price. $100,000. You're a little odd, Doc, Billy Bob told Heinrich. But I'm the best at cutting them open and sewing them up, Heinrich said with a laugh. Billy Bob was antithetical to complexity. To satisfy Billy Bob, Heinrich wanted to shoot Agnes on the first thought, or as a second possibility, poisoner. Not for Billy Bob, who also didn't like up-close blood and didn't do poisons or knives. But Heinrich insisted Agnes must suffer. God had spoken to him, Heinrich added for emphasis, although he despised the thought of God. He wanted to never see Agnes exhale again. He said repeatedly, with clarity, but reverently following Billy Bob's insistence about not saying the forbidden word. It took months for Billy Bob to fully heal and the time to finally come, a cold, windy night with a light snow cover. Visibility was low. Billy Bob unzipped his park and pulled down the collar to show, with a pocket flashlight, the clock tattoo. I got me a little needlework, Billy Bob said. The doc stared. There were two numbers freshly added to the clock, eight and nine. I got the eight. What about the nine, the doc said. Billy Bob laughed. This is a tough one for me, he said. Complexity. I don't get it, Heinrich said. A lot of integrated stuff deserves a nine. Billy Bob zipped his jacket up with a smile. Heinrich eased the family car onto the railroad tracks with Agnes sitting bound and gagged inside in the back. Heinrich killed the engine. Billy Bob parked his car on the road. Even when they untied her, Agnes did not struggle or speak. Billy Bob put her gently into the driver's seat. Agnes remained still, and Billy Bob put the can of chloroform he'd used to knock her out back in his pocket. Good, Heinrich said. Billy Bob secured the doors from the outside. Heinrich stood behind him, breathing hard and fast. Agnes had regained her senses and stared straight at Billy Bob, non-judgmental, without a hint of fear, and a faint smile that disturbed Billy Bob but inflamed Heinrich all over again. In minutes, the Amtrak engine whistled around the bend. Both Billy Bob and Heinrich were sure the train would not slow for the remote crossing. The headlight pierced the darkness. The barriers descended. The warning lights flashed. Heinrich stood near a tree by the roadside and watched the express bear down on Agnes, the definitive object of vengeance. Billy Bob stayed down near the barrier till the last minute to be sure Agnes didn't get free from the car somehow. A hundred yards from the car, the engineer reacted. The train brakes skidding on the tracks towards Agnes. Sparks flew with a screech of steel on steel. Heinrich saw Agnes, her face pulsating red and white in the blaze from the crossing lights. She sat motionless. He was sure she still smiled. He pulsed with anger. Whap! The train threw the sedan 50 feet into the air to land away from the tracks upside down. The car was ripped open. 
Windows smashed. A fire flickered under the rear axle near the gas tank. Agnes lay in a ditch, her severed head resting right side down on her breast, attached only by a piece of skin. Heinrich raised a fist into the air. Yes, he cried, we did it! Billy Bob approached, carrying the crowbar. I sort of admired her sitting here like that. She seemed to take a punch in the face standing up without moving, he said. She was scared out of her mind, Heinrich said. That was what Heinrich hoped after all these years he'd suffered her bland water-drip torture. But deep down he was enraged at her serene acceptance. Her smile at the end had already begun to haunt him. Uh, no, Doc, she was, um, I, like she didn't care. I, I liked her spirit. Heinrich could not comprehend Billy Bob's thinking and frankly found him crazier than he originally thought. With one swing, Billy Bob hit the Doc in the neck with a crowbar. Heinrich, frozen with surprise, sank to his knees. What's this? Heinrich said, looking up at Billy Bob with wobbly eyes. His neck was broken in two places. I got the money, Heinrich wheezed. His hand weakly patted the money in the satchel by his side. Why? She was a better soul than you, Billy Bob said. You made a deal, Heinrich said. Billy Bob hit Heinrich with a direct whack to the head. The skull cracked. What kind of man are you, Heinrich said on the edge of incoherence and death. You one crazy dude, Billy Bob said, pounding the doc's head with two more blows. Then he tossed the crowbar into the withered weeds that stuck up through the snow blanket waiting for spring. Heinrich took a last breath, gurgling with blood. It ain't all about the money, Billy Bob said to the doc. You ain't got no sense about what's good in people. Billy Bob took the satchel with the cash from Heinrich's right hand death grasp and disappeared well before the first emergency personnel arrived. The second story is Gatemouth, Willie Brown, and Guitar. An escaped convicted felon arrives in New Orleans and lives on the street to avoid apprehension. In Jackson Square, he plays harmonica for tips on a bench occupied by a guitar player, unhappy with his presence and competitive music. Despite their quarrels, music binds them as wary friends to the benefit of both. So let's listen to Gatemouth Willie Brown on Guitar. New Orleans, late summer. Gatemouth Willie Brown coughed into the microphone on a boom that poked out horizontal from a chrome stand with a black painted metal base and eased out smoke he breathed in from a lit cigarette in his left hand, his right hand gripping his battered Gibson guitar by the neck to keep it steady. A small portable speaker at his feet amplified a short, screechy, and human sound. Willie sat alone on a city bench in Jackson Square on the Cabildo side. The gray sky blocked the sun and trickled a light misty drizzle, more relief from the heat than a pesky bother. Tourists were sparse. Willie quit playing until he might gather a crowd, making a few music lovers put a little something in his Café de Moan coffee can for playing something they thought was New Orleans special for them. But it wasn't much New Orleans jazz what he played. It was mostly Delta, some folk tunes, a lot of strumming, what he felt like at the moment. White tourists weren't special to him, and he didn't really care what they thought about his music, but he did care whether they might give up a little change, sometimes a one, and maybe even a five or a ten on a good day. 
But big bills like 50s was like charity, which he take but don't like. And he don't cotton the white folks treating him like charity. But this week he was low on cash and he'd take anything. His wife was bad sick and need a doctor. Blacks rarely roamed the French Quarter, except the punks. The punks don't have nothing to give that wasn't stolen. No, sir, nothing for Willie from blacks. Even black got the stash, never put out a dime to a brother. Woodley's life tied to the whites when it came to money. Pissed him off, too, ever since he first learned about whites when he was six years old. But this white dude came into his life, arrogant son of a bitch, too, like he was superior. This white guy, all bearded and bushy-headed, comes towards Willie out of the pirate's alley, wearing pants with holes in the knees and a plaid shirt with buttons missing, like he come out of a dumpster, and a wrinkled Panama hat with a brim down in the front so you see only his eyes when his head tilted back. He'd been in the alley for a while, leaning against the cathedral wall fence, just staring. With all that hair on his face, you couldn't tell what he was feeling. But he had these piercing eyes, cold like he don't be liking black folk. He don't say nothing, just hold up a harp, a big river. Split the take, the man say. He don't talk like a crazy or even a down and out. He got some schooling, probably running from the law. Don't need no sidemen, Willie say. The man sat down on the bench no more than a couple feet away. I said I don't need no help, Willie said strong. No law against me sitting here. You on my spot, man. This is my spot for a long time. Not on your spot. I'm on my spot next to your spot. And I'll put my hat out for change in front of me if you don't want to work together. Look, my man, no playing. That's all I got. Don't bullshit me, the man said. I'm straight with you. You're on welfare. Probably got Social Security, maybe a pension, maybe got a woman turning tricks, living in the tree may, and liking life just fine. I don't like you, Willie said. I'd be young, I'd whoop your ass. I don't think so, the man said. A tour group walked down from the corner of the Charters in St. Anne. Willie turned the knob to up on his amp and began playing, kicking his money can out onto the path. The white dude next to him put down his Panama a little further out in front and a few feet from Willie's can, turning the top down to make a place for money. Then the dude puts on shades he takes out of his shirt pocket. They sit crooked on his face because they've been and cracked like he sat on them. Fucking honky, Willie think. So Willie's got the thumb on the downbeat on the low string and open tuning, and he's using his first and second fingers to carry an upbeat for rhythm, changed in with a little melody and a slap on the heel of his hand that make the amplifier sound like a gunshot. He ignored the white guy best he can, but he's seen him out of the side of his eyes sucking on a note here and there on his harp, getting the pitch. He changes harp then, taking another, a horner blues, out of his jacket pocket. Willie start playing quick, Tourist is getting close. The crowd slowed to a stop like blackbirds swooping in for a roost, all gathered around looking at Willie, so Willie ups his energy a little. The tourists be looking through Willie after one course, eyes jerking around like they lost where Willie was. So Willie sing a song. For a moment, the group looked back at him, but not for long. A few people in the back of the clump of music lovers already start leaving with nothing in Willie's can. Shit, the white dude get ready to play. 
He's going to be blown over Willie's guitar, and the white dude start tapping his foot hard so his beat crush out Willie's faint, slow pulse, and the dude start wailing, sounding like a fast train's wheels clacking at a spur crossing. Then he put in fill-bending notes, easy as a willow branch. Damn if them tourists don't freeze like them wax figures in that fake history museum on Bienville. They stare at the dude. The folks that start off going away from Willie come back to look at the dude. Now the tourists give angry looks to Willie, rattled at Willie's sound invading the dudes and looking like to bust Willie's guitar and turn it to ash. Willie stopped playing. The dude's not bad, goddammit, he thinks. Willie ain't hurting many like him. Pissed Willie off. White man play a beat like that and make it sound joyful sour with the sound of a colored parade band coming back from a funeral. The white guys stop, then pick up a slower tune, tourists throwing green into his hat like he collecting for the church. So Willie ain't in tune with the guy's harp, but he don't like being outshined and he starts slapping a rhythm on the strings with the heel of his hand, and in seconds he lay the guitar flat on his lap so he could use both hands to pound out a shuffle with that slow Mardi Gras Caribbean-sounding beat. He'd kick his can a little farther out. Shit, the dude never look at him never even give him no apperceived eye glance, and the tourists still reaching out them arms and dropping paper into the dude's hat. In two tunes, Willie, sure, the guy makes 50 bucks. 50! Some blimp of a woman drops two quarters into Willie's can, clunk, clunk on the bottom. No one else, nothing more than two quarters for gate-mouth Willie Brown. The dude played maybe a half an hour making money, the crowd growing. Then he put the harp in his right side pocket, reached down to take the cash out of the hat and stuff it in his left pocket, and then take off his shades, then put the hat on top of his head and walk off. God damn if he don't never look back. Not one time he'd give a wave or a call thanks to Willie for backing him on a couple tunes, and Willie wants to drown that white man in the Mississippi, push him into the wheel of a paddle steamer. Yes, sir, that dude don't deserve no mercy. The next day, Saturday, after the flow of drunk guys in town for the Saints game slowed down, Willie slide around the corner onto St. Anne where Tuba Fats playing with Henry Thibodeau on clarinet and some 16-year-old kid out of the Ninth Ward blowing a valve trombone. Stupid. Tourists don't like no valve trombone. They like the slide, the growl, even when it sounds like shit. You see that white dude on harp before? Willie asked Fats. Fats shakes his head no. Well, he playing on my spot. He fucking know how to blow that motherfucker. Well, he ain't supposed to be taking my tips. He talked to you? Uh, maybe three words, full. The next day, the white dude back mid-afternoon. The fucker sit in the same place next to Willie's spot. Willie kick his can a little farther out. Today, Willie is bent on turning some bread when the dude plan. He gonna back the white dude no matter what keep him from hogging. So Willie pull out his bottleneck slide and slip out a little melody on the top string where you don't have to change tuning, just slide on the string trying to make it sound good. The dude never look at him, don't even glance to say he like or don't like. After a half hour, the dude clear his hat and cram cash into his pants pocket. Damn, must be $75, but nothing for Willie. It's racist. No count about the money. The dude is a fuck-off racist. Hating Negroes, taking advantage. The dude come back three days in a row. After the first day, Willie keep putting his can out. He get a little, but the tour is giving most to the dude. And that ain't usual for white guys crowding in on a black man's gig in the quarter. 
Them tourists pity the blacks playing the street. They give to music men like giving money to eight-year-old pickaninnies tap dancing for coins. Guys still don't talk much. Willie's sister-in-law say the white man a murderer. But Willie don't see that in him. Maybe he's steel, but Willie don't see him killing nobody. So Willie decided to broach the guy. Hey, mister, how about you splitting? You said you didn't split. I changed my thinking, Willie said. The dude shrugs, but he don't share nothing with Willie, whose can still only gets a few coins in rare green, nothing higher than a loner. On a Friday, Willie take the wife to the doctor early in the morning. They got to ride the streetcar to City Park. Come on, Hermione, he say, but she's staring out of her wheelchair like her skull gone empty. We going to the doctor, he say. That get her, and she began wailing and moaning. She's saying something like, nah, but only Willie knows she's upset because he's been listening to her crazy talk for so long. She got dementia since Hurricane Camille, and that be's hard to take care of because Willie ain't got no money for the doctors she need. But the next day, Willie back on his spot. Well, the duty don't show. And then Willie get confused because he likes the guy's playing, even though the honky ain't generous with his take. And in truth... Will he make more money with his can when he's playing next to the dude collecting with his hat than when Willie making sound all himself? After lunch crowd, Willie take a smoke break with two buffets. The guy asking about you, Fatsy. What you tell him? I tell him you taking her money to the doctor. That none of his business. He asked, like you want to know, do you do drugs, steal from the church collection plate, stuff like that. What'd you say to him? I tell him I don't know you real good, but I tell how sick Hermione be. Don't be telling him no more. He not like a bro, but he blow good. Well, the dude come back. Willie decided he's going to sing a song while the guy wipe his mouth out with a tissue over his finger before blowing his harp, like cleaning shit out of the stable before putting a horse in. Then the dude just sit back and listen to Willie, the dude's hat still on his head down over his eyes, his legs stretch out. Willie finished his song and light up a joint he'd been saving. Sing that again, the dude said. I just done it. Just sing it again. So Willie knocked the glow off the tip of his joint and put the butt in his shirt pocket for later and start singing again. The dude's got the righty flat harp out of his pocket and he play a long cross harp, not like you want a solo but like he toting a cotton bale delicate down a wharf with some wharf rat. Bale be heavy and need to be tipped just right to ease the weight, and the feet need to be set just right on each step, testing the wood planks for cracks and holes to avoid falling on your ass. It take feel can't be learned, and the dude's got that feel for music. And the tourists come like swarm of roaches drop off banana leaf trees in the garden district. And they looking at Willie, who's trying his best to look like the lead. Willie kick his can a little farther out while Willie's singing, and the guy back him for maybe the only the second time in as many weeks. Damn if the greens don't start almost flowing over the side of Willie's can. And from that song on, for many days, Willie sing and make money, the dude backing him. And when the dude leave, he divvy up equal bills from his hat and give them to Willie no matter how much them tourists put into Willie's coffee can. Every few days the dude come for more than a month. He might teach Willie a song or tell Willie how to play one of his standards better than he doing. 
Tuba fats bitch you really make money cause it cut down on fats take. Fats being the big draw on the square for more than a decade and fats don't take to being second best. A week later it's still hot and Willie hear the word pass and creep through the quarter. Through the artist vendors hanging them pictures on the fence around Jackson Square. Pictures of the cathedral and the cabildo and them drawings of famous people that no one knows who they are because they all look drawed the same. And the tarot card readers, the living statues, the tap-dancing seven-year-olds with beer can scraps sewing on the soles of their sneakers and scamming tourists for tips. I bet your quarter I can tell you where you got them shoes. Okay. They on your feet. Oh, Jesus. The whisper come through all those folks like the wind before one of them whiplash storms. Undercover cops on Royal from Esplanade. Go around the square in a flash and then up and down Decatur, out the park across the streetcar track. Willie and the dude hear the word. They look around. Willie spot them first. Then the dude sees them too. Jeans, open neck shirts with collar, not tourist. And blue sports jackets with bulge near the heart. They carry in heat. The dude take cash from his hat and put it in Willie's can. And then he reach into his jacket, inner pocket, and pull out an envelope to give to Willie. Willie hurry to hide the envelope in the lining of his guitar case so cops don't see nothing when they walk from the tarot card reader who's smiling like she ain't never had dope in her possession since Christ be born in Bethlehem. In seconds before the cops see him, the dude disappear into shadows of Pirate's Alley. The dude hold back long enough to see the cops coming. Willie look down, shake his head when the two dickhead cops ask him questions. They not locals, feds maybe. Willie see the dude shoulder his pack and the dude's gone when the cops move on to John Tuba Fats. Fats just smile and say he don't know nothing. Well, Willie never see the dude again. In the envelope is enough money to add to Medicare and welfare and get Hermione into a nursing home where she'd be watched 24-7 so she don't hurt herself. And Willie's coffee can doing great, filling up on its own now without the dude, like the dude left some good vibes in Willie's axe when he disappeared. And soon, Willie's plane brings swarms of tourists that throw money his way, like he's a healing cave at that Lord's place in France, where he want to take Hermione someday. This story and more than 35 others can be enjoyed free online, as well as five novels at storyandliteraryfiction.com, a website dedicated to providing resources for fiction writers, resources that include essays, interviews, a blog, a newsletter, a workshop and tutorial, and much, much more. Hey, thanks for listening, and goodbye. This podcast is a production of storyandliteraryfiction.com.